Welcome everyone to this episode of the Planet Pantry Podcast, a show about the pantry staples that people around the world reach for every day to make the foods they love. This week, we're taking a look at rice wine. When many of us in the West think about rice wine, we think almost exclusively about Japanese sake. Sake is indeed a great example of rice wine with many varieties and a cast of extremely dedicated and meticulous brewers. But there are other rice wines out there that are crafted with just as much love and care, either at home or in large commercial operations. And we're going to do our best to define as many of these common ones over the next few weeks as we can. This week, we're going to focus mostly on sake, and on the next episode, we'll look closely at Chinese, Korean, and other rice wines in the same family and their history. This subject will also have us revisit a friend from the very first episode of this podcast on soy sauce, koji. Koji is really magical stuff. We'll get into exactly why later on, or you can revisit the soy sauce series for a primer. But it's one of the most unique, versatile, and important culinary tools on the planet. It will continue to come up in all kinds of places you might not expect as we explore other pantry staples. But this week, we'll briefly go over how it works, how it's used to produce the great grain wines of the world, and how you can easily make great use of it at home. There's a lot to explore here, a great process, some amazing stories, and some very important pantry staples to look at. So without further ado, grab some sake, some makgeolli, or some liaojo, aka Shaoxing wine, and let's get into it. So wine is a pretty broad category. Obviously, what comes to mind for many of us in the West when we hear the term wine is the grape wine of classical European fame. But just as beer can be made with malted barley, wheat, rice, or any combination of different grains and other ingredients, and just as the term spirit covers everything from vodka to whiskey, wine can be equally ambiguous of a term. Mead is technically a wine. There are a wide variety of fruits used in the so-called country wine-making process, and many people have managed to make wine from grains, although that does require an extra step. In any kind of alcoholic fermentation, as we discussed in the episode on the various forms of kvass, the goal is to use yeast to transform sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide. And in any kind of fruit wine, the sugars naturally present in the ripe fruit are more than enough to get a good amount of alcohol out of the fermentation process. Maybe you have to add a little bit of sugar to get the level of alcohol you want with a balanced sweetness in the final product, but generally you can get a good product without adding any sugar at all. We've all tasted fruit and noticed the beautiful sweetness. Same goes for the honey used to make mead, but rice isn't sweet, so where does the sugar necessary for fermentation come from? That's where koji comes in, at least in Japan. In Korea, it might go by nuruk. In China, it might be called chu. In Indonesia, it might be known as ragi manis. Many cultures have their own version of the stuff, and there are slight differences between all of them. But at the core of what makes these things so important is the mold Aspergillus orizae. This mold is amazing. It has the ability to transform foods and drinks in such dramatic ways that it could easily be confused for alchemy. So wide are its applications that the same koji that is used to make a beautifully light, effervescent, and delicate rice wine can be used to make a dark, robust, and very savory miso or soy sauce. 
Koji has appeared and will continue to appear in many future episodes, because not only is it the source of so many ubiquitous pantry staples, but it's also been adopted in recent years by chefs from all over, looking to use its mystical powers to transform their favorite foods, and the results of Koji's journey have had unexpected ripples around the food world. One notable example of this is in the labs of Noma, which has been voted the world's best restaurant many times. Noma operates on a philosophy of hyper-locality. They aim to make their world-class dishes with ingredients bought, forged, or hunted as close to the restaurant as possible. This is an ambitious task, and without a high degree of creativity and the application of a diversified toolbox of techniques, it could be constricting. So they've achieved their success by applying techniques from Japan, China, Mexico, and many more places to their local ingredients. And the application of koji is arguably the most impactful practice that Noma has taken from another culture. It allows them to make garums out of Danish deer, it lets them make soy-like sauces from Danish yellow peas, and it lets them transform otherwise overlooked ingredients into elements of a world-class dish. Now when it comes to the export of food or food practices, the question of cultural appropriation must always be considered. There's a great passage in the book Koji Alchemy by Jeremy Umansky and Rich Shi about how this applies specifically to Koji, and I'll summarize it here with some additional notes. So the epitome of cultural appropriation comes in the form of something like Burger King, say, were it to introduce what they would call a Korean-style burger. In this hypothetical, they make the burger exactly the way they would always do, but in order to check the Korean box, they mix some gochujang into their ketchup. This demonstrates a total lack of understanding and respect for gochujang, its origins, its best uses, and instead treats it like a novelty. This is despite Burger King obviously having the resources to do their due diligence, to learn about gochujang, pay it some respect, and to use it properly, because its potential isn't really being used by simply mixing it into ketchup. So this comes off as a blatant attempt to cash in on what someone in the Burger King offices probably heard was a new trend in food, but what has really been a fundamental part of an array of thought-out, proper Korean dishes for a long time, and which is built on an even older process of donjang and ganjang making. It would be insulting to Korean culture and to the target customers of the burger. This is, of course, a hypothetical scenario, but things like this happen every day, and it's sad not only for the cultures which created these great foods, but for us as newcomers to them, because by ignoring their origins, we're losing out on a lot of value. On the opposite side of this spectrum is Jeremy Umansky and his Jewish deli in Cleveland called Larder. Jeremy, along with Rich Shi and a cast of other koji and fermentation enthusiasts, have gone to great lengths in the past decade and even longer to really understand koji, to learn about its history, its uses in its homelands, and to experiment with how it can be applied to their favorite foods. Being a deli of this style, their menu stands on the shoulders of hundreds of years of Eastern European Jewish people refining their food to make it as good as it can be, and it is amazing. It is a highly underrated cuisine. In the book Koji Alchemy, Umansky mentions a truth about smoked brisket. It can often come out with patches of perfection alongside some less amazing spots. 
To improve on this, he adds Shiokoji, another great application for Koji that will be the subject of a future episode. I don't want to get too much into the science of this now, but put simply, the enzymes in the Shiokoji help to break down the meat, ensuring more even tenderness, and they also create sugars to aid in a nice caramelization. In addition, he makes Koji charcuterie with vegetables like beets and carrots. This vegetable charcuterie comes out with the delicious, savory taste of a meat charcuterie, but is totally friendly to vegetarian or vegan folk. I'm Hungarian, and I love Eastern European Jewish food. It's where a lot of my roots lie, and I see nothing wrong with this. Nor do many Japanese koji lovers. And that's because he took the time to learn about koji and its historic uses in Japan and beyond. His charcuterie mimics some classic Japanese preservation techniques, and shiokoji is used as a marinade for meats in Japan all the time. And he applied those techniques in an artful, seamless, and beautiful way with the foods that he grew up with. This is what many might think of as cultural appreciation, and it's how these techniques or ingredients need to be shared on the global stage for the benefit of everyone. Not because people are sensitive snowflakes who need to be coddled, but because if you're a chef, who wants to make use of an idea or an ingredient that's new to you, you'll get a lot more out of it if you take the time to learn about it. The more we understand and appreciate everything that comes our way, the better for everyone. We are all new to this global food world, and mistakes are inevitable. Many of us are going to make fools of ourselves many times, but we'll get there and the results will be well worth it. But remember, no one's cuisine is inherently better than anyone else's. We all have a lot to learn from each other and we all love our food. Many might assume, and I've heard these thoughts expressed before, that people in China were making rice wine as early as 3000 BCE out of necessity because they didn't have access to the clearly superior grapes and other fruits of Europe. But this isn't true. There's actually evidence that grapes had been cultivated and fermented in China as early as 8000 BCE. That's a long time ago, but it's not super uncommon for a culture's alcoholic beverage of choice to predate the civilization itself. Many argue, in fact, and you can make up your own mind about this, that alcoholic drinks and the crops needed to make them have been a powerful historic driver in the establishment of civilizations around the world. It's hard to pin down the exact origins of grape wine in China. The metamorphosis of a sweet fruit and its sugar into alcohol are part of its natural life cycle, and it's almost harder to stop this process than it is to introduce it in a sterile setting. The various yeasts and bacteria responsible for the fermentation are all around us. You've probably inhaled more than enough to get a batch of beer or wine going just while listening to the first few minutes of this podcast. If you hadn't inhaled them, those billions of bacteria and yeast cells might have continued to float through the air, aided by the currents of the natural wind, the motion of buses as they drive by and create currents of air, or by the convection created by differences in cool air and hot pavement on a summer's day. This journey might have ended on the skin of a fruit which had recently aged to perfect ripeness, or maybe even a little further. And as the fruit continues to age, and as different bacteria which have adapted over millions if not billions of years to prefer different foods, munch on different parts of the fruit, the yeast waits patiently to get a hold of one of the best energy sources within the fruit, and one of the most abundant, its sugars. The micro world is cutthroat. The body of our fruit is valuable territory and thousands of different bacteria, often with conflicting interests, are all trying to get a foothold in this volatile environment. When the yeast finally gets to that valuable supply of sugar, it makes its move. 
With an abundant supply of food, it multiplies, and yet more yeast join the battle for supremacy in this hostile world. They have several weapons at their disposal, and the most valuable are the byproducts of their feasting on sugar, carbon dioxide, and alcohol. Yeast have a pretty decent tolerance for these compounds, but others aren't so happy with them. So as they produce more CO2 and more alcohol, the environment becomes too hostile to many of the bacteria and friendly to a few. It's a prosperous time. The yeast are living in a paradise and several generations will manage to forget about the harsh world inhabited by their ancestors while living in a peaceful ignorance of what's to come. But in a cycle as natural as any other, this supremacy won't last forever. There's only a finite supply of sugar for the yeast and after they've gorged themselves for many generations, the supply will inevitably run out and the yeast will be left floating in a sea of their own waste. And this is where the survivors come in. When the yeast became the dominant force in our fruit, one would be forgiven for believing that they had wiped out all other life in this strange world. But small factions of rebels had survived and they lay dormant, waiting for their turn to overthrow the rule of the yeast empire. One such faction was the Acetobacter, a class of bacteria who loved to eat alcohol. And as the Acetobacter combed through the fields of yeast laying dead, saturated in the byproducts of their own indulgence, they happily enjoy the seconds and begin a new cycle of prosperity as they turn that alcohol into acetic acid. This is how wine is turned into vinegar. But the moral of the story is that not all good things last forever. And we're not mindless yeast, but conscious and brilliant humans. So do with that what you will. But now that we understand the microscopic life cycle of fruit as it becomes wine and ultimately vinegar, let's see how koji helps us to do this with rice. Rice isn't naturally sweet. It's pretty bland and starchy on its own. So how does that solid grain of starch become a sugar so that it might eventually become alcohol? Well, starches are polysaccharides, or long chains of sugar bound together by nothing more than friendship and glycosidic bonds. Have you ever noticed that when you chew rice or something else that's heavy in starch, it becomes slightly sweet in your mouth? That's because our saliva is packed full of amylase, an enzyme which breaks long and complicated chains of starch down into simple sugars, thereby making our food that much easier to digest. And in fact, many cultures in South America use the amylase in their saliva to break these chains of starch down in things like yuca and maize to make the base for kawim a fermented alcoholic drink with a lot of ceremonial importance in its home countries. And interestingly, this was also practiced in Japan. The Jomon of early Japan are supposed to have enjoyed fruit alcohol as early as 3000 BCE. But by 1000 BCE, around the time that rice cultivation was introduced to the archipelago, a chewed rice wine was also being made. Known as Kuchikamizake, the early predecessor to modern sake was made by chewing rice and using the mash to start the same enzymatic reaction that is achieved today with koji. This was done by young women who would chew rice for hours from early afternoon till dark, and it was part of certain rituals recorded to have been performed in Shinto temples as recently as the 1930s in Okinawa. The other great source of amylase is the mold Aspergillus orizae, or koji, Koji produces three enzymes which people use for different applications. In the case of soy sauce, for example, you can use protease to break the proteins in things like soybeans down into their constituent amino acids, which are the foundation for umami flavor. And to clear this up real quick, umami is real. Just because it wasn't commonly discussed in European cuisine for a long time doesn't mean it isn't a thing. 
Check out the episode I did on soy sauce to learn about glutamate, the amino acid responsible for this unique character, and I'll link some materials describing this unique piece of the flavor rainbow. I don't mean to rant, but working in culinary, I run into a lot of old-school chefs who are still in the 90s narrative that umami is just a made-up trend and to ignore umami, or the special savory character present in anything like meat, soy sauce, and mushrooms, is to ignore a fundamental tool in your culinary kit. But that aside, another enzyme produced by Aspergillus oryzae is lipase, which in things like meats cured in koji mold work alongside the amino acids produced by protease to make that special aged charcuterie flavor. Lipase breaks down fats to make fatty acids which contribute to the aroma of our cured meats. But when it comes to rice wine and other grain wines made with koji, we're mostly interested in amylase for its ability to turn starch into simple, easily fermentable sugars. So let's explore how this works by looking at how sake is made right after this. So the first thing that any sake brewer must do is purchase some rice. And this is in itself a meticulous process. As with any brewer of any fine alcohol, ingredients are important. And the grower of the rice destined to become sake takes a special pride in their product and many prefectures have a variety of which they are particularly proud. Think of it like grapes. Heirloom varieties as well as newly developed ones are carefully cultivated, graded, and processed to achieve an end product unique to that rice. Everything needs to be taken into account. From variety, growing region, growing method, weather, everything must be calculated to meet the exacting standards of a good sake brewery. There are over 30 varieties of rice used in sake making, and some of the most popular are Yamada Nishiki, Omachi, Goyakumangoku, and Miyama Nishiki. Yamada Nishiki is by far the most popular, with nearly 34,000 metric tons harvested every year and it is said to produce a beautifully fruity fragrance. The next most popular is Goyamangoku, and it is grown across the island of Honshu, Japan's biggest and most populous island, and especially in the Sea of Japan side of the Chubu region, and it's said to make a delicate and clean sake with only a light aroma. Omachi is an heirloom variety of sake rice, and many other popular rice varieties for sake are descended from it, but in its own right, it produces a uniquely mellow, earthy sake, and it commands a lot of respect. In addition to these few, many other varieties produce entirely different outcomes, and as with grapes, everyone who loves sake has a preference. But choosing your rice is only the first step in the long sake-making process. The next is taking that raw rice and polishing away usually at least about 20% of it. When rice is picked, it has a protective bran layer around each grain. Kept intact, this is what many of us would know as brown rice, but that bran must be removed for sake production. And in fact, even more of this rice needs to be removed. Rice is a seed. It's made with everything it needs to grow into its own rice stock one day. So under the bran is a layer of nutrition meant to feed the early stages of growth. This layer includes relatively high concentrations of fat and protein, which, like the bran, is great for us to eat, but not great for sake production. What we want out of each grain of rice is the starch for our koji to turn into sugar. And once you've polished away at least 40% of the exterior, you're left with a pocket of nearly pure starch. 
So even though the sake breweries paid full price for whole grains, the first step is to polish away at least 30% of that expensive rice. After the rice has been polished, it needs to be soaked before it is steamed. This is important and often overlooked by first-time sake brewers. Soaking to exactly the right degree is important, and master brewers will often time their soak to the exact second and use their senses to determine exactly when it's ready to be steamed. Once it's been steamed, about 20% of the rice is separated to be used in making of koji, and this is really an art. As I mentioned earlier, rice wine in Japan had previously been made by having young women mash the rice in their mouths to take advantage of the amylase naturally present in our saliva. This method has been practiced by many cultures around the world, and although more efficient methods were known, it holds spiritual and ritualistic importance to many, and is therefore still practiced in those respects. This week, we're focusing more on how sake is made as a reference for the varying rice wine processes in general, and in the next episode, we'll explore the overall history of rice wine more in depth, but one spoiler that we can touch on as we explore how koji is used in sake is Chinese chu. Chu is amazing, and again, we'll look more at it next week, but this is likely how early rice wine was made on a commercial scale in Japan, and it's likely how Buddhist monks in Japan isolated koji over a thousand years ago. You can find chu in many Asian grocery stores labeled as something like Chinese brewer's yeast, Shanghai yeast, or any other number of names. But it's pretty easy to spot, it usually takes the form of white balls or cakes that are sort of an all-in-one package for making rice wine. They contain a plethora of bacteria, yeasts, and molds, and different analyses of what exactly is in chu often turn up different results usually with over 30 microorganisms, but Aspergillus oryzae, various lactic acid bacteria, and alcohol-producing yeasts are always among them. Again, we'll get more into the history of this next week, but one thing that really separates Japanese sake from Chinese rice wines is that around the 8th century, Buddhist monks managed to isolate Aspergillus oryzae, allowing them to take full advantage of this amazing mold and to separate its specific value from the static of the many organisms living within Chu. And it was at this point in the Nara period that the first process closely resembling modern sake production appeared. The koji that brewers used then, and that which they use now, has evolved significantly. Unique strains have broken off and been bred to best suit specific applications. Today, many brewers use the many, many variants of white and yellow koji. If you see some moldy grains in a culinary setting today, they might be Rhizopus oryzae, Aspergillus lutrensis, or any variety of mold which might put out a little citric acid, they might produce different flavors or a different balance of enzymes better suited to the task at hand. But Aspergillus oryzae is the standard in sake koji, and in that family are strains which have been bred over many generations to produce more amylase than other enzymes to reduce the savory character that might be brought by proteins, or the crazy aromas which might be called forward by lipase. Koji is an amazing but often intimidating world, but the good news is that there are plenty of resources for you if you want to bring this stuff into your home. The book Koji Alchemy was released last year and serves as a great and friendly guide to people at any level of familiarity with the stuff. And if you have further questions, there are great Koji communities on Reddit, Instagram, and more which can be found with the hashtag KojiBuildsCommunity. So I encourage you all to check out these resources if you want to learn more. But koji is only your first dance with the micro world in the grand ball of sake making. Next, you'll have to set the stage on which the main event occurs. 
There are many sake making methods out there, and although I like to read about them, and I've even practiced some myself, I'm just not that guy to decipher them all for you, my lovely listeners. I probably wouldn't be able to do them justice, but I'll leave links to websites, books, and other resources to really dive deep if you'd like, and maybe we can touch on one of the more classic methods next episode. But pretty much all of them involve introducing acid to your mash. The koji and the rice that we've prepared so far will be added in batches over a period in order to stretch the lifespan of the yeast by letting the koji slowly feed its sugar over time. This allows sake to reach an alcohol content as high as 21%. In addition to stretching out the lifespan of the yeast, initial fermentation steps will give time for naturally occurring lactic acid bacteria to propagate. The lactic acid produced by these bacteria, along with the alcohol which will eventually be produced, will preserve the sake during the brewing, creating an environment which favors the microorganisms we want while being hostile to those we don't, a fundamental concept in any fermentation. Once acid has been built up or added separately, the full proper fermentation begins. This is also highly controlled and for good reason. All fermentation is highly dependent on the environment and especially temperature. A kimchi that might take me a week or more to ferment to my preference here in the Pacific Northwest might take my wife's family in Puerto Rico half as long. Everything happens faster at higher temperature. Fermentation is a great demonstration of this and that is why sake brewing is generally done through the winter. And even in the cold of winter, the heat produced by the activity of the fermentation can raise it above the ideal temperature of around 5 to 6 degrees Celsius, and breweries employ a variety of methods including large bells filled with ice to keep things cool. But all of that isn't to say that sake brewed at higher temperatures and even in the summer months would not be possible. All of this is just in the pursuit of a great product. The sake will ferment for around a month, and when it's done, it's to be filtered thoroughly, or at least it often is. Filtration of anything is usually done in stages. Doing it at home, for example, you might start with a broad mesh strainer to get the larger bits out, followed by a finer mesh to get the smaller bits, and then something like a nut milk bag to finish it off. But even all of that would render you a cloudy drink. So to get that clear sake look that we all know so well, and this goes for cider, wine, or any other homebrew, many will use something like bentonite clay, which drags particles down, or a simple cold shock, which, by leaving the product in a cold environment for some time, eventually settles heavier particles and a clear liquid can be poured off. Sake breweries often use specialized charcoal filters for this, and once again, this is an art within an art. When I brewed my first sake, I tried putting a small amount through a Brita filter, but I wouldn't recommend doing that yourself. The filters used by the pros are specially designed and layer various rocks and minerals in the endless and often obsessive pursuit of clarity, and these arrangements are closely guarded secrets to some. But not all sake is filtered to this degree. Nigori sake is filtered so that only chunky and really grainy parts of the maromi are separated. Nigori sake is beautiful, it's often sweet, rich, and milky, a unique treat in a league of its own. And this, aside from bottling, sanitation, pasteurization, and other such important practices which are equally important in these disciplines, is brewing. Brewing is a big deal. Every culture everywhere does it to some extent. As I mentioned earlier, some argue that it's the foundation for civilization. Those theories can be a little out there, but it's important practice and some kind of alcoholic beverage sits in the corner of nearly every good food culture on earth. They're often made from a key pantry staple of whichever culture claims them. 
They've been refined over thousands of years, and they bring joy to billions of people every day. Given this importance and tradition, I am woefully under-equipped to explain the specific processes behind making these drinks. I've made many types of rice wine at home, and I have always done so with the guidance of a variety of sources who are familiar with the process. If I had tried making sake based on a bare-bones understanding, such as the one I've provided you today, I would have missed some very important things. But I encourage anyone who wants to, to try and make this rice wine at home with this fundamental and simple explanation. It's a lot of fun, and you'll almost definitely enjoy the results. But don't call it sake unless it does respect to the process that has been developed by brilliant brewers for thousands of years. I don't think anyone listening would want to do themselves or Japanese culture that disservice. But if you do want to take a crack at the real deal, I've provided some wonderful links in the show notes that will give you a good walkthrough on how to do that. I tried to keep my description broad, but there are sakes made outside of these broad terms. There are many variations in recipes from brewery to brewery, and even if they're as subtle as a slight difference in temperature, a mildly different koji strain, or a different stack of filtration minerals, they make the difference that makes the brewer of that specific sake proud enough to call it their own. But now that we can respect sake and its process, let's take a look at some of the different types of sake, the uses for its byproducts, and a quick look at what we'll be exploring in the next episode right after this. So before we get into the different varieties of sake, or at least some of the more popular ones, I want to give a big shout out to the unsung hero of sake making. When I made a batch of sake last year, I was left with a large amount of sake lis, or sake kasu. I had heard that it has a lot of uses. Breweries would historically remove the alcohol from it and sell it as fertilizer, but there are also a great number of culinary applications for the stuff. And little did I know when I wound up with nearly four liters of it that I would use all of it in a matter of weeks and that I'd find myself at the local Japanese grocery store looking for packaged sake lease left over from breweries in Japan. Just in case you don't know what I'm talking about, when you brew anything, you inevitably employ some kind of solid. Those solids, be they grapes and wine, wheat and beer, or rice and sake, don't always break down all the way. Whatever enzymatic or microbial process brings us the sweet base for our favorite drinks, the harsh micro-world inevitably leaves some sign of its conquest. If you're a fan of craft beer, you might know this as the very fine grains left at the bottom of your bottle or glass, and the same goes for wine. These aren't all that's left, but rather just the fine sediment which couldn't be strained away. The bulk of that sediment from your wine or beer was used as fertilizer, pig feed, or maybe even in some really good bread at your local bakery. This spent substrate, fermented waste from which the true value our alcoholic drinks has already been extracted, has been of concern to brewers across disciplines for ages. But thanks to koji enzymes, our sake lease has special utility. One thing that you have in your strained sake solids is the base for alcoholic amazake. Amazake is a sweet drink normally made by mixing koji rice with regular cooked rice and holding it at a decent temperature for about a day. It's a drink enjoyed across Japan as a treat and can be served either warm or chilled, strained or chunky. The name translates roughly to sweet sake, so it's normally devoid of alcohol. But it's not uncommon to make an alcoholic version by subbing out the koji rice for sake lis. Served warm, this is reminiscent of Chinese junyang, 
a delicious comfort food which we'll be looking at next week, but it can also be used to squeeze extra value from the koji enzymes inside. Sake lease has a lot of activity left over from the fermentation. You have a beautiful mess of enzymes, yeasts, bacteria, acids, and other compounds which you can still use to extract further value from your months of laboring over your sake. And that brings us to another deeply important concept in Japanese cooking, pickling and curing. We'll probably have a whole series on Japanese pickles or tsukemono someday because there's such a wide variety of ingredients and methods used in these practices and they include some of the world's favorite pickles. Many methods in pickling in Japan include the use of koji-based products to take advantage of the enzymes to achieve flavors and textures which would otherwise be unattainable. Beds made from miso, sake, sake lis, mirin, and other beautifully flavored active ingredients make for a uniquely dynamic and complex product. Pickles are a cornerstone of classic Japanese cooking and with sake lis you can create some really special ones. And similar processes to those which you would use in pickling fruits and vegetables can be used to marinate proteins as well. When I had my sake lis, one of my favorite uses for it was to marinate fish. Just like Jeremy Umansky's brisket, which we talked about at the start of the show, this creates a beautiful, evenly tender fish with a nice fermenty kick, a little extra glutamic savoriness, and the sugars produced by the interactions between the koji and the rice ensure a beautiful, dark caramelization when you broil the fish. Served with nothing but some rice and a little umeboshi, a delicious Japanese pickle made from plums, it's probably one of the best meals I can imagine. So if you make your own sake, or if you get some lease from the store, get creative with it. Explore some of the resources I've shared in the show notes about classic Japanese applications for the stuff, but use that to learn how versatile and wonderful of a tool it is. So quickly, before I leave you all for another short two weeks, it feels wrong not to provide at least some guidance in clearing up the confusing world of the sake aisle at the grocery store. I am by no means an expert, so refer to some of the resources I've provided in the notes for more information, but I think I can at least clear up some of the basics. The main differentiation that's probably worth understanding is Junmai versus non-Junmai type sake. You'll see a lot of labels with the word Junmai printed on them, and this isn't necessarily the specific variety of sake, but rather an indicator of purity. Junmai, apparently, translates roughly to pure rice, and Junmai sake is made using only rice, water, and koji with no additives. Non-Junmai sake will often include the addition of some distilled alcohol. This isn't always a bad thing though, it's a common misconception that this denotion of so-called purity is a sign of quality, and that's not true. Furthermore, the idea that this is often done to increase the alcohol content of sake is usually also a myth. The addition of distilled alcohol helps brewers to extract more flavors and aromas from the maromi, the mash made by mixing koji rice with cooked rice. This often can create a better product and the extra alcohol is usually offset by the addition of water later on. So in the end, neither Junmai or non-Junmai is necessarily better. It all depends on the product that the brewer is hoping to obtain in the end. The addition of alcohol, acid, or sugar is absolutely done in lower-end sake for economic reasons, to raise yield and alcohol content. But it's also done in higher-end sake for the reasons mentioned before. The other thing that's worth noting is the level to which the rice was polished before it was used to make sake. Junmai sake doesn't technically have a strict rule about this. Instead, there are many subcategories with stricter definitions for rice polishing. 
Historically, sake, which was pretty much all Junmai or pure rice sake until the years following World War II, would have its rice polished to at least 70%, meaning that 30% of the rice's volume had been taken away. Today, that standard of polishing is held by the Honjozo category, and this is an example of where the addition of a little distilled alcohol can do us a service. Since Honjozo is made with a relatively low degree of polishing, there are more proteins for the koji to turn into amino acids, and this contributes a slightly savory umami taste to the sake, making it a good pairing for many meals. But this umami flavor can be balanced when the distilled alcohol brings out some lighter, more delicate flavors from the maromi. It also helps to increase the shelf life of the sake when amino acids would normally lower it. Following Honjozo, Ginjo-style sake is required to have been polished down to at least 60%, meaning that 40% has been removed, resulting in a nicely balanced sake great for pairing with lighter dishes or chilled sipping. And finally, we have Daiginjo, and this variety comes with a 50-50 requirement, meaning that at least 50% of the rice must have been polished away prior to brewing. But this can often be taken to insane degrees with some breweries opting to go into the 90s, meaning that less than 10% of the rice's original volume remains. This is the territory of high-end fancy sake, but a high-quality product can come from any of these standards. Beyond that, there are many other categories, like the nigori that I mentioned earlier, nama, which is unpasteurized, koshu, which is aged up to 15 months or more, and even awa, or sparkling sake. But this is a deep, deep rabbit hole. There are so many types of sake out there, and the best way to get to know them all is to read about them, talk to other people who love sake, and to taste as many as you can. But try brewing it if you have the time and the resources. It can be as complex as you want it to be, but you'll almost definitely end up with something that you'll enjoy, each batch will be better than the last, and you'll get that infinitely valuable lease to make all sorts of delicious pickles and meals with. This cursory exploration of sake is a good foundation for our understanding of rice wine, and next episode we're going to look at the rich history of rice wine throughout Asia and some varieties from Korea, China, and beyond. So join us for that on Wednesday the 25th of August. The release schedule has been a bit of a mess lately, because I have a lot going on. I'm getting married in September, and I'm trying to figure out how to get to Denmark after that to attend the MAD Academy course on environment and sustainability in hospitality. Lots of exciting stuff, but lots to do to make it happen, so thank you dear listeners for being patient with me. I promise we'll settle into a groove someday. As always, if you have questions, comments, complaints, suggestions, or anything else, feel free to reach out on Instagram at planetpantrypod or by email at planetpantrypod at gmail.com. There are some sources in the show notes, but the character limit doesn't let me put everything up, so if you want to know more or where I got some specific information, ask me and I'm sure we can find it together. And finally, don't forget to check out the Patreon at Planet Pantry Pod if you want to support the show and if you want to see better and more frequent episodes. I'd love to create more content and more of a community around sharing our favorite pantry staples, so join me over on Patreon and Discord if you want to be a part of that. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all next week for more on rice wine.